You know, I think it is true to say that sometimes we, uh, we get so caught up in, uh, in big concepts that we forget some of the basics um, and things that we assume everybody knows because they're very elementary. Maybe they don't. And, uh, and maybe we do ourselves uh, a disfavor by doing that. Let me give you an example. How many of you drive a car? You all have licenses and drive cars. Maybe I should have said how many drive with a license. Um, how many, uh, I don't want to know. How many, uh, how many of you have been driving for at least five years? All right, look at that. Look around. Practically everybody here has been driving for at least five years. So one thing, certainly, that you know is how to drive a car. I can't possibly stand up here and tell you how to drive a car because you've been driving, many of you, longer than I am, and you've got that simple stuff figured out. For example, you know whether it's legal to drive barefoot or not. How many people here say it is perfectly legal to drive barefoot? And how many say it is illegal to drive barefoot? How many of you have no clue? (laughs) Shouldn't you know? Well, you don't want to get a ticket for something. Shouldn't you know? Sometimes those simple things we're not very in touch with, even though we sort of assume that we are. By the way, I know the answer to that barefoot question. And someday I may share it with you. (laughs) What about in our spiritual lives? When we talk to somebody about spirituality, are there sometimes some concepts that we just assume everybody knows? We throw the words out, we throw terms out, just as though everybody knows them. We use the terms of salvation and sanctification and redemption and propitiation, a lot of other Asian kinds of words, and we never really necessarily explain what those things mean. And I think sometimes we leave people wondering, there's a term that we use all the time, not just in the Adventist church, in Christendom in general. We refer to the concept of a personal savior, a personal savior. I'll bet you've used that term yourself. I've accepted Christ as my personal savior. Or have you accepted the Lord as your personal savior? Or do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Those kinds of things, right? And yet, do we really know what we mean when we say that personal Savior? I think the term is very important because Ellen White says this. When the sinner believes that Christ is his personal Savior, then, according to his unfailing promises, God God pardons his sin and justifies him freely. So if I want to be forgiven and to be justified, Ellen White says... I have to believe that Christ is my personal Savior. Well, I can't just use the term and say that he is because I use the term. I must understand what that means. She also says this, To all who have accepted Christ as a personal Savior, the Holy Spirit comes as counselor, sanctifier, guide, and witness. Well, if I want the guiding Spirit, then I need to have accepted Christ as a personal Savior. Not just to throw the term around, but to have actually done that. So obviously, it's an important concept. Let's dig into that just a little bit. First, we'll start with a dictionary definition, the dictionary definition of personal. It's an adjective, meaning of, affecting, or belonging to a a particular person rather than to anyone else. But that doesn't help us a lot at this point. So let me take three case studies. 
omnipotent Savior, but they're on the topics of getting personal with a topic. A topic of getting personal with a topic. Three completely unrelated stories, okay? First story. This is a true story. I had an officer. I'm changing the facts here a little bit, but I had an officer come up to me uh, in great turmoil. Now, she had been working as a police officer for uh, probably five years or so, and uh, she was uh, a a wonderful officer, uh, very well-liked, and she came into my office in private, just heartbroken about something, and had a hard time getting it off her chest. And when she finally got it off her chest, she says this, when I did my background packet for the police department, because we check very thoroughly on backgrounds, she says, I lied. I lied on my background packet. You asked me about prior thefts that I had been involved in, and there was something that I was very clearly thinking about I should have admitted to, I did not admit to. I've never done anything like that since. I didn't done anything before, but I didn't admit to it on there, and it happened as an adult, and it's eating her up. The fact that she got hired under a falsehood on her background and she goes into court and testifies and accepts the public trust and everybody accepts her as an honest officer and yet, in her mind, she's a liar because she lied on that background packet. And this has tortured her so badly that she is putting off starting a family. She's putting off uh, buying a house. She's putting off all kinds of important decisions in her life because she's afraid all those things are in jeopardy if anybody ever finds out about her lie that got her hired in the first place. She can't sleep at night. She prays, and she prays for protection on the officers. And she prays for all those good, honest officers. And in the pit of her stomach, she says she feels sick because she knows she's not one of them. So she came into my office to confess that ready to be fired. Because quite frankly, during her probationary period, if we would have discovered that, she'd have been gone in an instant. But now it's five years later, and she has proven herself as an honest person through her, uh, through her character and through her, through her behavior. The lie that she told in her background was a clear anomaly to her character. But do you understand the turmoil that she felt? Anytime somebody talked about the issue of honesty... She was in turmoil about it. She was conflicted because she knew where she had been and what she had done. So I offer that to you as an example to say this. That officer is personally acquainted with the topic of honesty. When someone talks about honesty to her, it's a deeply wrestled out concept. You know, the people she went to for advice on what to do, they said, Forget about it. Nobody cares about that stuff. She cared about it. All right. How many of you believe that there is such a thing in our world as poverty? Terrible poverty. I'm talking about really bad poverty. You believe there is such a thing. How does it change your life? Recently, the, uh, there was a group of students and staff from Wisconsin Academy and some other adults that came with them who went down to Nicaragua for their spring break. They, perhaps some of you received letters from some of the students, including my daughter, asking for a little financial help to get them down there to Nicaragua for this mission trip. And uh, they were down by Shinandega, Nicaragua. I have no idea where that is. I hope I said it right. 
But uh, there was an area that they went to um, away from town there that was very, very poor. So they're down there, and they're having a good time. You know, they go to the beach, and they do the zip lines, and they do many different things. But one day, they're going to a very, very poor section of the, of the town, and uh, they're going to give out some toys and clothes and uh, different things. And they were blogging every day their activities on the, on the uh, website for the school. And they've got photographs. It's a great, if you want to go there, go this afternoon to wisacad.org and look up. You can read the blogs every day, and you can look at the uh, photographs from their trip to Nicaragua. So this is their entry for March 16th. It says, this morning we painted walls and sketched the mural for the church veranda. We also cut out more felt sets to leave here in Nicaragua. And then at about 10 a.m., we left for an outreach project of passing out clothes, diapers, and toys door-to-door in a very poor neighborhood. Now, you can picture. These are teenagers, right? So there's lots of energy. You can't put 30 teenagers on a bus and not have it sort of pulsate with energy from all of these teens, right? And so they're on the bus, and they're having a good time, and they're joking and laughing and jostling around and everything, and it says this. As we drove down the dusty road in this neighborhood, our talking and joking got very quiet. The shelters these people called homes were not fit for dogs, cattle, or even farm equipment. They literally build and furnish their homes from the town's trash. The septic drainage runs alongside their homes. This was poverty like most of us had never seen. So we got off the bus and we walked from shelter to shelter, sharing with them everything we brought. We even gave them the cantaloupe we'd prepared for our lunch and we wished we had more. Everyone was so warm, friendly, and welcoming. One family let us tour their plastic shelter home. They roll out cardboard pieces on the dirt to sleep on. We won't soon forget this experience. We won't soon forget this experience. Having talked to my daughter after she came back from that trip, I can testify that that is true. Probably those young people, their lives, their perspectives were changed forever because they won't soon forget the experience. So what I'm suggesting is that we can talk about poverty But some people, some of you have been on mission trips, some people have a personal relationship with poverty. How many of you believe that there is such a thing as forgiveness? Do you know the name, do you know the name Nigel Lee? I did not know the name Nigel Lee prior to the preparation for this sermon, but... um, Nigel Lee is, uh, I think he's from Australia. He was born in South Africa, and he's an evangelist. Um, and uh, has written quite a bit, I believe. Uh, best known uh, for the pieces that he has authored. Well, Nigel Lee was asked to go on a worldwide tour, expounding, he has a, a sermon that he does where he expounds on the, uh, on the Lord's Prayer. And uh, so he was, they were setting him up on this world tour, and he was looking forward to it because he had the opportunity to go back to South Africa and visit his parents, whom he had not seen in quite a while. His mother was doing very poorly. She was in a hospital, and his father was at home, but he was elderly. He was, um, I think, 87 years old, and, uh, and he was looking forward to spending some time being with him. But before he got there, a few months before he got there, some young man came to his father's house 
and robbed him up and assaulted him and left him for dead. The police got to the father. Um, he, after several days, he was still alive. He was able to describe uh, his assailant. Um, but after a week, he died. So Nigel Lee's father died at the hands of a young thief. And uh, so a few months later, Nigel Lee is in South Africa as part of his tour. And uh, he asks if he can see, if he can visit with the young man that they caught and had in jail for killing his father. So I'm going to start reading. This gets just a little bit long. Bear with me. It says, on the 15th of September, I went to the jail where I was told to surrender my camera, my tape recorder, and any firearms that I might be carrying. I was escorted to a room where three armed policemen and their supervisor were doing clerical work. A minute later, the accused was brought through the door into the room and stood there in front of me. Think how you would feel. He was a strongly built, medium-sized man, exactly answering to the description given by my father to the police before he died. He stood there just looking down at the ground. I silently prayed to God for guidance as to what to do next. And then I got up from my chair, addressed him politely by his full name, greeted him with a handshake, thanked him sincerely for granting me the interview, and requested him to sit down before I did so. And then I said, Mr. W., are you getting enough to eat here? He replied, yes, thank you. I said, have you peace of mind here? He replied, sir, I'm very unhappy. I've been praying to God in my cell for the last three nights, but it's as if my prayers bounce back off the ceiling and don't get through. I then said, Mr. W., I am the only child of the old man who was left for dead behind the front door of his house in Berrydale on the 10th of July, whom you are accused of having assaulted. I had been looking forward to spending a week with him in September, but as you can see, that's now impossible. The young man nodded, looked down, and said nothing. I then continued, Mr. W., my father was not a Christian many years ago, but there came a time in his life when he turned from his sins and received Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and I know I'm going to see him in heaven. And I assure you, Mr. W., that if you make peace with God, whether you die right now of a heart attack or you're put to death for murder or you die naturally later on, you too will go to heaven. And I assure you that my father, whom you are accused of having murdered, will be the first one to welcome you there. However, Mr. W., if you do not repent, and if you die in your sins, I assure you that you'll spend eternity in hell. Mr. W., whether you repent and become a Christian or you harden yourself and die in your sins, know for sure that either way, if you are found guilty by the court, I want you to receive the maximum penalty. I will plead no leniency for you whatsoever, even if you become a Christian but I am offering you everlasting life in heaven if you'll repent and come to Jesus. Mr. W., three men died on a little hill called Calvary. Two were guilty robbers, but the one in the middle, the Lord Jesus, was innocent. Robbers, as you know, include those who go around beating up old people and leaving them for dead and stealing from them. Both of those robbers jeered at Jesus, crucified between them. But then one of the robbers repented, turned to the other and said, we're being condemned justly for we're receiving the punishment due. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then the penitent robber said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So Jesus said, truly I, I say unto you today, you shall be with me in paradise. 
Mr. W., do you not see yourself as one of those two robbers next to Jesus on Calvary? Will you die in your sins and go to hell like the impenitent robber? Or will you, like the other robber, repent of your sins, receive Jesus as your Lord, and be assured by him that you will go to heaven? Mr. W., if you wish, I'll leave this jail right now. If you prefer, I'd be privileged to show you right now how you too can become a Christian. Which is it to be? Mr. W. then tried to look me in the eye. He said, Sir, would you please show me how to become a Christian? I then realized the the four policemen in the room had all put down their pens. They'd stopped working and were straining their ears to hear. So I said, Officer, could you kindly get us a Bible? The officer went galloping out of the room and immediately turned with a Bible, and I put it on my lap with great respect, and he put it on my lap with great respect. I opened it up to John 3.16. I asked Mr. W. if he could read. When he said he could, I handed him the Bible and asked him to read it loudly, clearly. And then he said, but I'm too big a sinner. And I replied, Mr. W., it says here, whosoever, and that includes you too. If and when you put your trust in Jesus, the atmosphere was electric. All in the room felt the awesome presence of the Holy Spirit. The silence was terrifying, and I said, Mr. W., will you come to Jesus? And he replied, I will. So two wicked, hell-deserving sinners then went down on their knees in jail together. The Reverend Dr. Nigel Lee and his father slayer, Mr. W., I put my arm around his shoulder and prayed first. I thank God for our meeting. I confessed my own fresh sins to the Lord, and then I asked him to have mercy on Mr. W. for Christ's sake. Mr. W. then prayed. He said, Lord, I'm a miserable sinner. Please don't let Satan destroy me. I'm sorry for my sins. Forgive me for the sake of Jesus who died for people like me. We got off our knees, and I assured him, Mr. W., if you really meant that, you're now my brother. In that case, here's my right hand of fellowship. I'll help you in any way I can. Here's my address in Australia. If you write to me, I promise to reply to every letter you may write for the rest of my life. Now, we can say we believe in forgiveness. But I would argue that Nigel Lee has had a personal experience with it. We talked about the officer and the issue of honesty. We talked about the Wisconsin Academy trip down to Nicaragua and seeing, seeing the poverty. We talk about Nigel Lee's experience confronting his own father's killer in jail. To underline, to emphasize personal, that word, personal, as part of our relationship with Jesus. Where else do we go to get answers? Yahoo. I found this question on Yahoo Answers. Somebody posted, posted the question, what does it mean to accept Christ as your personal Savior in simple language? And they have various responses. Everybody's offering their answer there. And he includes with his question, he says, there's no need to preach to me. I just want to know what you mean when you ask that question. Somebody answers and says, well, you must personally affirm that Jesus is the Savior for all mankind and that you choose for yourself that Jesus bought you with a price, the price of his blood on the cross. A B. I give that a B. Somebody says, as one who grew up fundamentalist Christian, I always was taught or at least understood 
it means that you're saved because Jesus, I got a piece missing there, because Jesus personally saved you. And then there was somebody from a Catholic roots who said, um, well, it's sort of like a relationship, like where you say he's my boyfriend or my girlfriend, so stay away, but it's okay to be around him or her when I'm with him or her. A little convoluted. Accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior has to do with private versus corporate salvation. I would agree with that. This is basically a criticism of Catholicism, which believes that salvation is found through the church. Nice little editorial there, but it doesn't really answer the question. Uh, Let's see. Somebody else says, uh, to Christians, it means that you believe that Jesus was literally born, lived, and died on the cross as a sacrifice for all the sins you've ever committed and all the ones that you ever will commit. And it means that you understand that Even if you were the only person in all of history, he still would have done the same thing in order to provide a way for you to reconcile yourself with God and live with him forever. I think that's probably one of the better answers that are offered, but I still say it is lacking something. This one sort of uh, gives away his personal doctrine. The Tinkerbell theory of salvation says that all you need to do to get a free ticket to heaven is to believe that Jesus has given you one just as fairies will exist if you really believe in them. So also, if you really believe that you're saved, well, then you will be. That's what accepting Jesus as your personal Savior means. Jesus has taken care of it. You don't have to do anything except believe that Jesus has taken care of it. You certainly don't have to do all those troublesome and inconvenient things that Jesus told his followers to do, like give away your wealth or practice nonviolent pacifism. And this one I find uh, particularly interesting. He says it's a meaningless slogan. Personal relationship is a meaningless slogan. The slogan is a substitute by Protestants for man's relationship to God. Obedience is, this person says, obedience is man's relationship to God. Obedience is man's relationship to God. Obedience to join his one holy Catholic apostolic church, outside of which there is no salvation. And there's more. There's one guy who starts strong here, and then he talks, he's talking about Jesus stands at the door of your heart, and if you open the door, he comes in, and then it says, and his light will warm you all over, because he's divine light. It's kind of a strange thing. Uh, Some shorter ones here. Jesus took away all of humanity's sins if they accept him as their savior. There's nothing inaccurate about that statement, but there's something important missing. Uh, it means lose your true self and replace it with Jesus. Well, the way this works on Yahoo Answers is that a best answer is selected. And in this case, the asker himself has chosen the best answer. So he has chosen this as what he thinks is the best answer to his question. If you were the only person in the world, he would have still died for your sins as you believe in him, accept that he died for you, and ask him to live in you as Lord and Savior so that you now have relationship personal. And the asker of the question responds to that by saying, I thought that's what it meant. So as a Catholic, I'm born again through baptism and I have accepted Jesus as my personal savior. And I think he missed the point because every one of those definitions is missing something important. I think some are pretty good, but all of them are missing the word me. How can you talk about a personal relationship unless you do it personally and you use the word me? 
think about some of the most moving hymns that you know and why they're so moving, why they're so intimate, why they're so meaningful to you. And if we would change those hymns, sort of like they did here on Yahoo Answers, and talk about corporate salvation or your salvation, not my salvation, we would have to change our hymns. We surrender all and he walks with us and he talks with us and he tells us we are his own. Not as sweet, is it? Amazing grace How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you. Well, that wouldn't necessarily be inaccurate. But how much would that lose the quality of intimacy, the personal relationship of I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my precious Savior, I And how much sweeter the sound. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like. If it's not me, it's not the same song. That's a song about personal testimony. That's a song about personal relationship. Yes, we have songs like A Mighty Fortress is Our God or We Have This Hope That Burns Within Our Hearts. But none are so sweet as those who speak that speak of a personal Savior, of a personal relationship, of a personal salvation. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there. These are important words. None other has ever known. None other has ever known. That dictionary definition we did on personal said, of affecting or belonging to a particular person rather than to anyone else. The relationship, none other has ever known. The time that we share, the walks that we take, the talks that we have, the joy that we share, none other has ever known. That's mine alone. That's personal. The relationship that you have with Jesus, nobody else has. That's a personal relationship. Yes, he saves us. He he came to save the world. But he came to save us individually, and we respond to him individually. 
That's a personal relationship. The personal relationship is unique. It's one of a kind. It's customized. My personal relationship with Jesus Christ is not yours. It's mine. And each one of us can, should, must have that kind of me relationship with Jesus. A personal relationship. A fellow named William Barclay wrote this. Christianity never consists in knowing about Jesus. It always consists in knowing Jesus. Jesus Christ demands a personal verdict. He didn't just ask Peter. He asked every one of us, you, 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 me. He says, what do you think of me? Who do you think that I am? Ellen White puts it this way in Desire of Ages. A nominal faith in Christ, which accepts him merely as Savior of the world, which he is, can never bring healing to the soul. The faith that is unto salvation is not a mere intellectual assent to the truth. It is not enough to believe about Christ. We must believe in him. The only faith that will benefit us is that which embraces him as personal Savior, which appropriates his merits to ourselves. Many hold faith as an opinion. Many hold faith as an opinion, but saving faith, she says, is a transaction by which those who receive Christ join themselves in covenant relationship with God. I like those words. Saving faith is a transaction by which those who receive Christ join themselves in covenant relationship with God personally. As an aside, an editorial. I know that it was true for myself when I was a young man growing up. I understood the gospel. I understood the doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I understood Jesus as Savior of the world. I had that opinion of faith, but lacked personal relationship. And I dare say... That is a weak point for our young people today. They grow up in the church. They know the rules. They know the doctrine. They know the things that we stand for. And they accept the truth of what we say. But if it isn't personal, it isn't saving. It's got to get to the point where it has me in it. Me. And the power of a me personal relationship becomes a me personal testimony. And a personal testimony rooted in me reaches many souls. Chaplain Jimmy Carter. Anybody know Chaplain Jimmy Carter? He is the chaplain at Wisconsin Academy. Chaplain Jimmy Carter. He was on that mission trip. And he shared on the blog uh, a final closing letter to everybody as they uh, were returning. So he's thanking people. I want you to listen to, the, to what his letter says and what it indicates. He says, on behalf of the faculty and the students and the parents of Wisconsin Academy, we would like to say thank you. Your constant prayers, your words of encouragement, faithfulness and giving, and everything else done behind the scenes made this trip a reality. We couldn't have done it without you. That's to all of you, to all of us. And then he gives an address to the students. As I've told you before, I'm so glad you chose to give of your spring break to do many incredible things for others. Thank you for being model students. We're all very proud of you and all that you did on this trip. May God continue to give you a heart of service 
And he gives a, a similar address to the adult leadership team. And then he adds this. Finally, to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and forever friend, thank you for sustaining me, keeping me healthy, and providing me with a great team of service-minded people. Thank you for your unending faithfulness. Now that touches me, because that speaks to me of somebody who has a personal relationship and isn't afraid to share it or to make it known with others. Just adds a closing paragraph on his letter of thanks. He includes his personal friend and savior, Jesus, in his letter of thanks. So how's the personal relationship? How's the personal relationship? The power of a personal relationship is what becomes the power of a personal testimony that reaches the world with the gospel. A gospel message that Jesus died for the world is a true message, but not a powerful one. But a gospel message that Jesus died for me and I've accepted that gift, is a powerful testimony as I talk to you and as you talk to others. We're going to do our closing hymn today, and I am going to confound you with it. Carol has the easy part, and Sashi has the easy part, because they are simply going to play number 314. We, however, are going to sing around different songs. We are going to start with 314, the second version. Well, the words are there on 313 and 314. These are personal word songs. So on 314, just as I am, uh, you know those words well. We're just going to sing that through as the first verse, but that's not long enough. So for the second verse, we are going to sing the first verse of Amazing Grace to that same tune. Are you following me? We're inserting the first verse of the words to Amazing Grace as our second verse of 314. And that's page 108 if you need to follow along. And, uh, and then we're going to insert the chorus for verse 3. We're going to insert the chorus of And Can It Be? And we sing that through twice because, to make the meter match. Uh, and Can It Be is uh, number 198. You might want to put a finger there. I'm going to summarize all this before we do it, okay? Make sure you're comfortable here. So... The first verse is just as written in 314. The second verse, you will know that well. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We'll sing that. Uh, and then the third verse will be from 198, just the chorus. So our, our third verse will be amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? We repeat that. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Now, our musicians are merely going to play three verses of 314. Okay? So you guys have it easy. But as we sing this, the purpose of doing this is we're trying, we're trying to pull in some of these personal relationship songs. Think about the me in these songs. Think about your personal relationship that is unique from everybody else's. Your sins, your experiences, your successes, your joys. Jesus walking you through dark times is different than anybody else's. And he knows it. Almighty God. It's amazing, your love for us, that you would give your son, that Jesus would give his life, not for us, although that's true, but for me. 
and that Jesus doesn't want to communicate with us, although that's true. He wants to communicate with me. And more important than walking with us and talking with us is to do that with me. That Jesus looks for a relationship that is unique, that is personal, that is customized to me. Father, that's hard to comprehend. It's amazing love. It's amazing grace. How can it be? And yet you have made it clear that it is so. Father, help us to have a personal relationship, a very personal me-based relationship that translates into a me-based personal testimony that is powerful to reach others so that they can also have a personal me relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we ask, amen.